If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. The sooner we will be able to get rid of these two commodities, oil and coal, the better it will be. So we have to find another way of producing energy that will not actually produce CO2 emissions. But the thing is, green technologies such as electric cars, such as solar panels, such as wind turbines, these technologies don't come out of thin air. That was Guillaume Pitron, an award-winning journalist and documentary maker for some of France's leading TV channels. His investigations focus particularly on commodities and on the economic, political, and environmental issues associated with their use. And today we're going to center this discussion on his book, The Rare Metals War, which is a bestseller in France in the original French version. It's been translated into eight languages by now and just published in English, so definitely check it out if you're keen to learn more after this discussion. But do brace yourself, this is not an easy reality of the world to learn about, the controversial topic, but also the fact that green and clean energy and technologies are actually not entirely green nor clean. We're going to talk about why and take a step back to look at our history of the energy systems that we've gone through and what we can learn from that. We're also going to talk about how transitioning to the quote-unquote green energy infrastructure may actually worsen in environmental injustice in certain ways, and more. I do want to preface before anyone runs off, thinking that this is a message from the fossil fuel industry bashing renewable energy. It is not. Climate change is real. We do have to decarbonize our economy and energy sources as soon as possible. But we also can't sugarcoat the set of solutions seen as our ultimate way out
out of this current crisis because then we might just wake up on the other side and realize we're still doomed with a whole nother set of issues to deal with. So if you're not up for a heavier episode, maybe tune into something else first. But otherwise, I do think it's really important for us to be honest about where we are in order to best understand where we really have to go. So if you're ready for this, Green Dreamer, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I became a journalist 13 years ago. I was 27. No, I'm about 40. And I was convinced that one of the ways to interest the general public in international affairs happening at the other end of the world, one of the ways to interest uh, readers and TV uh, consumers was actually to talk about the resources they've got in their fridge, the resources they've got in their mobile phone. Anything around the world happens because we need to get resources, and that triggers political, environmental, economical challenges. And if you explain to the people that anything that relates at the other other end of the world actually ends up in their fridge, in their homes, and that they are responsible for that because they have to get these commodities somewhere for, for living, then you start to get them much more interested in something that was previously not very interesting. So the resource is a way to link something that is very far away to something uh, to your everyday life and that becomes something uh, very exciting for people to read and and listen and then when you start to getting interested in oil gas mining agricultural commodities wherever in the world well you start to dig into very interesting questions about uh, green energy transition about uh, geopolitics about economics and um, you know whenever there is a resource there is a challenge as i said So in the face of climate change, where the topics are often centered on carbon emissions, a primary goal people have set for our society is decarbonization by shifting to what they call green energy and no longer relying on burning fossil fuels. But you've really been pushing this dialogue by questioning whether green energy is really green. I'm wondering if you think it's a misnomer and a mistake to label green energy green, and how might we have been misled or short-sighted about the potential for green energy to save us from ecological degradation? That's a very good question. Obviously, green energy is not green, and clean technologies are not clean, and what we call sustainable energies are not sustainable. And that's very counterintuitive to say such thing and that may be very provocative but that is actually very true we are rightly moving ourselves away from oil and coal because oil and coal are responsible for climate change and obviously we are responsible for climate change and the sooner we will be able to get rid of these two commodities oil and coal the better it will be so we have to find another way of producing energy that will not actually produce co2 emissions but the thing is Green technologies such as electric cars, such as solar panels, such as wind turbines, 
these technologies don't come out of thin air. They need to be manufactured and they are made of minerals. And these technologies are made of base metals such as copper, zinc, aluminium. And they are also made of rare metals, which are said to be rare because they can be 3,000 times more rare in the earth's crust than base metals. And then we talk about 30 or so rare metals such as cobalt, tungsten, rare earths, gadolinium, gallium, indium, a mineral whose name is graphite. And where do we get these minerals from? How are we going to extract them and refine them? And I am a reporter. I'm going to travel to the field. That's my job. That's what I've been doing for the last years to look at the ways these metals are being extracted and refined in order to be in order to manufacture green technologies and the way these commodities are being extracted is extremely extremely dirty so if you want to make something clean at the end of the manufacturing process you need to actually pollute at the very beginning of the process where the metal is extracted that happens in Congo, that happens in Bolivia for lithium, for example, Congo for cobalt. That happens most of the time in China because China is the leader of the production of rare metals in the world. And wherever I've been for the last years in China, in graphite mines, in rare earth refining zones and any kind of mining areas, it's just a nightmare. Mm. People talk about an ecological nightmare. They talk about cancers, they talk about various kind of diseases, they kind of talk about air pollution, they talk about water pollution. And these people say, you have no idea, guys, about it because you are very far. Because actually, you don't mine anything in your countries. We do mine all the metals for you guys at the end of the process to say, hmm, we're clean, but you get no idea about how we can suffer here in Baotou, in Inner Mongolia, or here in the province of Elyongjiang to extract these resources. So basically, we have this perception of clean energy only because the source of that pollution has been removed from us. So instead of our cars burning fossil fuels and us seeing the pollution coming out of other cars' tailpipes, that pollution is really just happening somewhere that we can't see. That's exactly the point. We are relocating the pollution. We used to have mines in the West. Uh, in the United States, there are still a couple of mines. There were much more mines in the past than right, right now. Same in, in Australia and same in Europe. We used to be mining producers for our own needs. But, you know, we as Westerners want to live in a cleaner environment. Our environmental regulations are getting stronger and stronger. And at some point, we just don't want to have these polluting environments around us. That doesn't mean that we don't want to change our ways of living. That doesn't mean that we don't want technologies anymore. And around the 90s, 80s, uh, something like this, we start to close our minds and these mines get reopened somewhere in in the world, in developing countries, which are ready for anything, including devastating their environment to actually catch up their delays, their economic, their industrial delays, comparing to the West. And we are so happy in the West. We say, hmm, let the Chinese just open the mines for us and we're going to get some minerals at a good price. And everyone's happy because the Chinese get richer and we get cleaner. So we relocate the pollution in this way and we relocate the pollution of green technologies 10,000 kilometers away of our homes, and nobody has a single idea of how it's going on over there because no one gets in Baotou, in Mongolia, 
the lakes filled of uh, water containing heavy metals. And actually, you know, you're not very welcome in China when you're a journalist, especially a Western journalist. So it's very hard to get back witnesses, to get back audio and video from these places. So this pollution is invisible today. We don't see it. We don't even have an idea it does exist. And we are believe in a belief, believing that, you know, the world we're living in is clean. But it's just a question of relocating the pollution, as you perfectly said. Right. So sometimes I feel like in looking at statistics on environmental pollution in various parts of the world, people might look at the more so-called developing countries that have higher levels of pollution and basically blame them without connecting the dots to see that the ways of living in the West are also contributing to all of these outsourced pollution in other countries. So it's really important to not purely blame them, but to also realize that we're all connected. Mm. We live in a global world and we cannot have a fair analysis of anything around us if we don't look at the global picture. If I look at my own French picture, or if we look at just a US national picture or an Australian picture, we don't see the global picture. We don't see that we live in a connected world where actually I couldn't live the way I live in my everyday life. I couldn't even call you if there was no somewhere Indians, Malaysians, Chinese, Africans, South Americans being part of the process and doing something for my life to be what it is. So we really need to have these global views, which we don't. And that's, I think, a big challenge when we uh, accelerate towards this greener age. There is kind of hypocrisy here. I mean, I don't feel very happy and pride and proud, sorry, to, to say that because I'm responsible as a consumer for this situation. But I feel like there is a bit of hypocrisy to not be willing, sufficiently willing to, to analyze this global picture. Right. Well, it's always really helpful to contextualize what's happening in the present day with an understanding of our history. So can you walk us through the key turning points in the past centuries where we made significant energy transitions from one energy system to another and to the next into what we have today? Mm -hmm. Well, we can say that up to the 18th, 19th century, there was no real energy revolution, no real energy transition. We're, you know, depending on animals and on human force to actually move ourselves, build cathedrals and to, to wage armies. And the first industrial revolution happens where we develop the steam engine. The steam engine allows us to develop a lot of tools, including stream power trains. And uh, that is the first industrial revolution starting in England. And for uh, making these new technologies work, we need a commodity whose name is coal. And then in the 20th century, we realized that coal is not such an interesting commodity to produce energy and that we can actually produce much more energy with much less resources if we replace a steam engine by the thermical, uh, another thermical engine was them is the oil motor. And uh, for making these new technologies that we still use today work, we need to shift from coal to oil. And then the 20th century, definitely a century, which uh, was history, has been very much impacted by the use, global use of coal. And then 
we understand that these two technologies, these two resources, oil and coal, will actually burn a lot of gases and it will be responsible for climate change. I really say it uh, strongly. We have to go into another direction. We have to turn the back to oil and coal. And that's, this is how the beginning of the 20th, 21st century that accelerate with the Paris agreements in 2015, we try to move to uh, new kind of technologies such as solar panels, wind turbines, electric cars, which actually don't emit CO2. They don't burn anything when they're being used. If you look at the solar panel, if you look at any kind of technologies like this, well, you look at them, you see them turning, you see them heating, you see them moving, but without emitting any CO2 emissions. And this is where we arrive in this greener age because we don't see the carbon emissions. The carbon emissions are somewhere else. They are in the mines because you need electricity to make minerals. And this electricity in China is made of coal, mostly. So the carbon emissions are in China. They are not in the cities where you use electric cars. So we're going to solve locally a problem of pollution in crowded cities in the United States. And that's a very good thing. But we're just going to relocate the carbon production somewhere else where you need to make the metals, where you need to make the products to eventually be able to run an electric car, for example. A lot to think about. We've talked before on the show about how a lot of wars and conflicts have revolved around power struggles over the control of resources like fossil fuels. And so a lot of people talk about our need to break up with fossil fuels in order to not have those conflicts or have to be friendly mm-hmm. to the governments of countries with a lot of human rights violations that we should condemn and not cozy up with. Mm-hmm. But how might our new reliance on the infrastructure needed to build green energy just shift our global power dynamics and the conflicts and wars that we have? That's, once again, a very, very interesting question. Because, yes, that's wonderful, a free a world thread of oil. Because, you know, we can expect that all the wars that we have experienced during the past century, especially around Middle East, for example, for securing the strategic supplies of oil, will actually not happen anymore. But we are not solving the problem, as I'm trying to explain. We're just moving the problem somewhere else. We're shifting from one problem to another. And we're shifting from one geopolitical challenges of finding oil to another geopolitical challenges of finding rare metals. Where are we going to get rares? Where are we going to get lithium? Where are we going to get cobalt and tungsten and even base metals such as iron and copper for making green technologies possible? And some countries lead the production of these metals in the same way that Saudi Arabia and Kuwait used actually to lead the production of oil. And suddenly we discover that These countries, such as China, which are leaders in the production of these rare metals, don't want to sell these metals to the rest of the world. They want to keep these metals themselves, go down the value chain, and they don't want to sell us the rare metal, but they want to sell us the finished product with the rare metals inside, because they just want to get richer and make much more money. And then suddenly the question of embargoes and the question of uh, shortages reappear, appear again, because we're not sure we're going to get these minerals. And this is our exactly the very same questions are the questions and challenges we used to, to discuss and, and, and deal with last, last century. But it's just not relating to all, it's relating to a new generation of resources. And there is a geopolitics of renewable energies happening right now. This is the title of a very interesting report that was published by Columbia University three years ago, Geopolitics of Renewable Energies. So the moment you have to wonder where to secure these minerals, 
this is a new geopolitics happening. And we're going to have to get to lithium in Bolivia, to cobalt in RD Congo, to chromium in Kazakhstan, and to a wealth of rare metals such as rare earths, tungsten, gallium in China, in order to make our green living possible. And that's not going to happen peacefully, mm-hmm. because it's just not how history works. We're going to create new tensions, new economical tensions. It's already happening right now to make these supplies possible for ourselves. And I hope we're going to be wise enough to not wage armies in order to secure most strategic resources. But, you know, I don't want to be pessimistic, but history history tells us and when it comes to power and wealth, you know, there is always a war somewhere. So the green age coming up will be a very fascinating age, which I'm very, very eager to live in. But that's going to be a very challenging age. And that's going to be probably a very conflicting age. Mm. Well, this theme has already come up multiple times in this conversation, but at a more human level, social justice and economic justice has been top of mind for a lot of people. And I think most environmentalists currently have an optimistic view about how transitioning to green energy can support climate justice because climate change disproportionately affects people who face greater economic poverty around the globe. So they say if we can address climate change, we can lessen these social injustices. But what do you see as the more realistic picture of how shifting to green energy may address or contribute to economic and social and racial inequity? That's a very interesting question. I believe our move to a greener age will bring more social injustice. It will bring more ecological injustice. Why is that? It's because we have organized the world between those who are dirty and those who pretend to be clean. But those who are dirty, who are actually extracting the minerals, are those who are the poorest. In faraway zones, in rural areas, at the other end of the world, where nobody goes, these are the people who are earning a couple of dollars a day for extracting the minerals. And they are the the ones dying from cancers in the cancer villages of China where I've been to extract the minerals. And at the other end of the process, you've got rich countries claiming to be green because they can afford to buy expensive green technologies. So you see here actually something which is nothing but a new kind of injustice taking shape in front of our eyes between the poor who are actually, maybe tomorrow will be even more poor and even more ill, who will make our greener world possible somewhere else in the West where the rich can afford to live in a more environmental and sustainable way. So I don't really believe in what we call, uh, you know, uh, solidarity, ecological solidarity or anything like this. Now, given that what we understand as green energy really is a solution to a problem, but that creates a new set of problems, 
What is your view on why we have a tendency to repeat this cycle again and again as evident from our history? Do you think this comes from our lack of understanding of the impacts of the new solutions constantly proposed or our need to constantly justify that we're on the right path forward or something else? Hmm, that's a tricky question. Um, history is, is repeating itself. History is all about love, power, hatred, wars, justice. And whichever age we live in, we are, we as humans, just reproducing these uh, very um, characteristics of our minds all the time. Sometimes I wonder if history has sense, if history has a direction, because we just change technologies, but we don't change the very way, the very way we are. We don't change the fact that we are looking for more wealth, that we are looking for more power, that we are excited by everything that makes we humans as individuals more powerful and more, and more rich by every day. And all the characteristics of our minds, which are underlying such our activities and our ways of thinking and, and acting do not change at all with time. And we are just in the same age. Uh, we are pretending to be modern because we are obviously dealing with modern technologies, more complex technologies, which actually are very exciting technologies, by the way. But that doesn't change the way we are in ourselves. And that's a thing to make technological progress. But I don't think there is human progress here accompanying the technological progress we're climbing to to achieve today. We're taking a leap forward in terms of technologies, but we don't take a leap forward in terms of human consciousness. And I also believe that we, whatever we do, we look in the short term. And more than ever today in our uh, societies surrounded by social media networks and uh, everyday uh, news programs and shows, we don't take the time to look what would consequences the results of our actions 10 years, 20 years ahead. We don't have this time anymore. Politicians don't have this time anymore in order to make sure they're going to be reelected, neither in the United States nor in Europe. So we have to take fast decisions for fast results. And we don't look at the consequences one generation, two generations ahead. Mm. So I'm not sure we are able to take right decisions for our grandchildren if we live in such a short-term age. I think we have value systems embedded within our dominant culture that I would consider as misguided because these value systems of really obsessing over uh, material wealth and financial wealth and constantly improving these numbers on a piece of paper that hasn't actually led to improved life qualities for a lot of people, improved health and happiness. And I think it's interesting through the lens of energy because our society tends to look down on work that requires human labor. But as we've digitized and electrified our economy, and more and more corporate jobs have people sitting in offices using digital technology for most of the day, we end up with a population of so many more people who don't get enough physical activity. And because that's not good for our health, people then have to find more time to intentionally exercise, often at gyms with machines like treadmills that are electrified in order to work off some of our mm -hmm. physical energy to stay fit. So I guess this irony just gets me to ask whether we need to challenge our basic 
like ideas of progress and advancement, because as more and more things become automated and mechanized, we're becoming more vulnerable as we're more reliant on external and unsustainable sources of energy to power our society. People are increasingly working jobs that don't feel meaningful to them and chip away at our mental health. And people are increasingly dehumanized by a system that treats so many like replaceable parts and pieces of a machine. That was a brilliant way of saying how we live today. To, to add up to what you just said, I would um, introduce an interesting uh, phenomenon which scientists are very aware of, which is a rebound effect. Any technology is claimed to be a better technology than the past generation of technologies because it's going to be uh, more functional, more powerful. It's going to use less resources and less uh, power for actually achieving the same task. But these new technologies will actually make us even more willing to use these technologies and to actually buy more of these technologies. And this is how we are today surrounded by thousands of connected objects in our everyday life, where having one single phone 20 years ago was sufficient for having an exciting life. So this is what we call the rebound effect, which is that on the one hand, a technology makes savings. On the other hand, such a technology, because it claims to make savings, pushes us to actually buy more of these technologies and to make even more, even wider use of them all the time. Mm. And that rebound effect in the way we consume will actually cancel the benefits, the environmental benefits or the energy benefits, the resource benefits of the technology itself. And we come up to living in a better way. We come up to living with more technologies around us, but these technologies push for more consumption and we're not solving the problems here because we live in more automated environments with all the psychological questions that actually it's already uh, bringing to our lives, as, as you said. Think about that. We're spending hours in our cars every day in urban cities, uh, urban environments. But tomorrow, what if we have connected cars and autonomous cars? What will we do five hours a day in our cars doing nothing? Well, well, we'll watch YouTube, we'll watch mm -hmm. Netflix, we will go to more social networks, and we're going to have to be busy, because we're going to be busy doing something that we don't have to do anymore, because we're not going to have to look at the, at the car ahead of us or behind of us. So that's going to spark huge psychological questions. How are we going to use our times and to make our time, our life filled with exciting things if we don't... Uh, spend this time using what we used to do? And secondly, what will be the place for new social networks, new technological applications, new entertainment in order to make this life as fulfilling as possible? And I think we're going towards an entertainment age which in which Silicon Valley which have a, will have a huge power for making our lives busy and, and, full, and, 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 and full of, of sense, I guess difficult question to answer. So mining is different compared to farming in that we can farm in ways that regenerate the ecosystem and to not compromise the land's inherent capacity to recreate abundance. But when we mine metals, there's no way to establish reciprocity, no way to mine regeneratively, and therefore no way to really mine sustainably. So this discussion really takes apart our understanding of quote-unquote green energy that really requires a new type of infrastructure and dependence 
independence in order to sustain. And it leads me to wonder whether the greenest form of energy is what actually exists within our living biosphere that have the capacity for regeneration and therefore sustainability as long as there is balance, complexity, and reciprocity and not overconsumption. If we think about various technologies which just make our basic needs more easy and more cheap and more accessible to everyone, including the poorest. No one wants to get back to this. Maybe we can discuss whether it's necessary to take 10 times a plane every year, or if we have to go to social networks 10 times a day. But that's for the upper crust of the very rich people who are consuming more and more of what they already have in such already huge volumes. But for the poorest and for the middle classes and for Africans and many Asians, which are not living in the same way as as we do in the West, this is out of position to think about this. I just want to to, to catch up and to live the way we live, or at least to get a decent living and a decent access to medication and to their basic needs. And technology will afford that. So I'm, I'm afraid we're not actually in the process of really bringing or putting in place or really thinking about reducing anything. We are just, on the contrary, accelerating. And this is driven by the development of developing countries. Now, there is a question which is wondered by scientists, which is how do we bring and how do we put more vegetal, bio-organic things in our everyday life? And that kind of leads us to the questions of, the, of trees and, 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 and uh, that you were wondering before. And people want to, to make materials, complex materials, not made out of mining uh, commodities, but out of trees or out of agriculture or out of animal uh, products. And they can find the properties in a laboratory of something that is vegetal or animal and turn this property into something which is electronic or mechanic or which can be used in industry processes. So there is there are attempts to actually use the properties of any commodities, including commodities that come from the ground and that come from the animal living world and to replace them by what's not sustainable, such as a mining commodity. And for example, solar panels tomorrow will be like paper sheets, transparent paper sheets made of biological products, made of uh, plants or trees. And we are able to turn these uh, properties, which come from the living world, into products that can actually catch the light and turn and the future of solar panels will be made of this. So we can expect maybe to not be uh, too much dependent on mining and more dependent on uh, these kind of digital products which are much better for the environment. But that's going to take decades, Mm. maybe centuries, because we are 8 billions. And still we we can't continue the same levels of consumption and we have to look within as well. I'm not sure if you saw the controversial documentary Planet of the Humans. I did. I did. I thought I thought it was courageous. <laughs> that's yeah. what I felt. So that's what I assumed. I thought it was would... <laughs> courageous to to be able to bring this issue. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, that's what I assumed you how you would feel about this. But it's basically been taken down by YouTube. Some notable environmentalists called for it to be taken down, while other people 
disagreed with certain things in the film, but called the act of removing the film censorship. Basically, there are various statistics and information shared within the documentary by people quoted that were either outdated or just not true. And that's what that's why a lot of critics took issue with it. But I personally saw it. And I think the larger message that it was trying to get across that green energy is not going to save us because of the new sets of issues tied to it, meaning we can't simply substitute fossil fuels with these greener technologies and think that alone will save the planet and ourselves from ecological collapse without fundamentally questioning our consumption and how our modern civilization exists on this planet. I definitely feel like that bigger message while it might be really upsetting or uncomfortable for many people to reckon with is valid and that's also why I believe some environmentalists saw the film as dangerous because in this time of urgency people really want to encourage action in support of decarbonization and not disengagement or total hopelessness that this path that we're going down still isn't the answer but I'm curious to get your take on that as well. I saw the movie and I thought it was a very courageous movie because it needs some, it takes some courage actually to go against the flow and to, uh, to develop an analysis, which is uh, way different from the conventional wisdom in green circles. I agree with you that, uh, you know, some figures can be debated. There can be some, there might be some mistakes somehow with one figure or here, but the general thesis, the general idea is very right. And this is just what we've been talking about. And I believe that there is real honesty in the approach of the filmmaker by doing this movie, by bringing to the table and to the debate uh, this general idea that uh, green technologies will not save us from any uh, ecological issues, ecological challenges. It's it's can be kind of a uh, a despairing thesis. It can bring actually uh, non-action or it can just bring people to think, well, what should I do if there is no solution? And that also is a dangerous flip side of such ideas that because there is no solution, well, we can just not stop acting and we can, we have to, to we, we don't have to, to fight anymore for turning the, our back to oil and to coal. So I agree with you that there is a risk here. Uh, the, my thesis is we have to face the reality. I'm just trying to speak about reality. What I've been explaining to you for the last minutes or half an hour or so is the very reality that I've seen on the ground. And I think I wouldn't be a journalist. I wouldn't be able to look at myself in a mirror if I were watching this reality without actually talking about it and saying to myself, I'm just going to keep this reality for myself and I'm not going to share it with anyone because nobody needs to know. I need to tell you this reality. But also, and this is also my responsibility, to tell you what do we do now? Where do we go? What solutions do we find? How do we develop new substitution techniques, recycling techniques to be able to make these technologies uh, less polluting than what, what they are today? How do we question the way we consume in order to actually correct the mistakes that we have already done in this green age? How do we calculate the amount of pollution that these new products bring in our everyday life because no one is able to actually uh, see any figure about it? And how do we make these uh, figures of pollution uh, available to the public so that the public is better informed. These are the solutions that we need to ask now. But my very 
conviction, uh, my very uh, what I'm very certain of, uh, like actually the filmmaker of this movie, Planet of the Humans, is that this green transition or whatever transition it is needs to be more radical. It just not, doesn't need to be just a technological transition. If we just believe that we're going to save the planet by uh, putting solar panels on our, our roofs and changing from our old cars to electric cars, we're not going to save anything. And we need to be much more radical, to take a much more radical st stance, maybe to make a U-turn in the way we think and act in order to make this green transition possible. And that can bring hope. But probably that we need to re-ask the questions and to look much deeper than what we've done until now. Mm. And as we're wrapping up, what are the key takeaways that you would like our listener to walk away with so they can translate this somewhat heavy discussion into maybe some actionable things that they can do? As I mentioned, I think there is in this transition a lot of space for hope. There is, we are living in an age which is wonderful in many ways. Uh, we live in an age where one technology chases the other and where disruptive innovations can sincerely bring possible solutions to many problems that we have. And I really believe that uh, when, I, when I speak to students in conferences, I say to them, commit yourself to becoming scientists or engineers and researchers because uh, we, we, need, we need you to actually turn our ideas and our utopias into feasible techniques that actually can help solving problems. And there is a huge pass, a huge way ahead of us, a uh, huge space for uh, uh, generations of, of scientists and researchers to actually uh, uh, for example, use better use natural products in order to turn them into to make new electricity technologies and energy technologies. So there is space for and money and, and, and political uh, willingness uh, for uh, more discoveries. We also live in a wonderful world. Uh, it's a beautiful planet and it's a planet which, which is, and I'm going to be provocative here, very peaceful. We live in a peaceful age. We, we believe we are surrounded by violence, uh, which is not very true, actually. Uh, look at the figures of uh, collective and, and violence. There has not been uh, such a few number of people dying of uh, wars or crimes today than for the last two or three thousand years. It's amazing how few people die today of such collective violence, contrary to what the media say. I offer you and I suggest that you go back to this wonderful book of um, Stephen Pinker, published in the United States in 2011, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which explains the history of violence and tells us that we are living in a peaceful world. And that makes me hopeful that uh, this uh, world today is also a very exciting age to live in. And that's probably the best world to be uh, if you are 20 years old. Mm. Well, Guillaume, thank you so much for this really important discussion. I hope our listeners walk away with many things to think about and an eagerness to dive deeper and definitely to check out your work and follow you online and to um, read your book as well. So if they would like to follow and support your work, where can they go? 
They can go to uh, my website, www.guillaumepitron.com, and uh, obviously uh, they can have a look and, uh, you know, find everywhere on any website my book, which was uh, which is published in October in the United States, whose name is The Rare Metals War, published by Scribe Publication. Perfect. And the last thing is, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say a couple of things, but, uh, you know, I'm very worried by uh, people's angriness. Everyone's angry around me. Everyone is angry on social networks. And I would say, don't let angriness drive your actions. I would also say, work with passion and honesty. Try to stick to what you love. Try to stick to what you feel is right. And as my father says, you do good where you feel good and try to do good where you feel good. Well, we've come full circle and are coming to a close here. I know you hear me say this all the time, but having your direct support as the listener is really important for our independent platform to continue and so that we can keep exploring a lot of these topics often sidelined by mainstream media. In the United States, we know that 90% of media is controlled by just six corporations, which I think is extremely problematic and why I personally try to financially support the outlets that I read and listen to. And I highly encourage you to support the independent platforms that you read, listen to, watch, and etc. if you can as well, whether that is Green Dreamer or something else. But yeah, if you can, I'd love to invite you to join us on Patreon starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com slash support. Today's song feature is Politician Man by Adrian Sutherland, which is pretty timely. Our elections are coming up here in the United States. I hope you are already registered to vote. And I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for taking this time to continue learning with us, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. 